we're making choices right from our gut and our heart all the time. And brands that don't understand how to go to be top of heart instead of just top of mind, it's just, it's kind of silly. So I spend a lot of time with brands I work with trying to get people to say, what do you want people to feel when they interact with you? Not what do you want them to think? Not what do you want them to say? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Joseph Michelli. So he started his early career, you can go on YouTube, there'll be a link in the show notes, fish throwing at Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle. So he tells the story of how he ended up getting hired there to help that business that was going bust fix a customer service problem that was at the heart of their inability to outcompete other fish markets in the area. And as Joseph says, look, it's a fish morgue. There is nothing less sexy than dead, cold fish. And so how can we create an experience for people? How can we make our store a signature destination for people looking to buy fresh fish? And so he did that. And then he was lucky. That was in Seattle. He was then able to work with Starbucks. They found out that the first Starbucks store in Seattle realized that they needed some help. And they reached out to him because he had a reputation now having done some work at Pike's Place. And he ended up at Starbucks first store, working with Starbucks and worked with them. And that triggered an amazing career. So he's worked with some of the biggest brands in the world, certainly the brands with customer service at their heart. He's worked with Zappos. He's worked with Mercedes-Benz. He's worked with Ritz-Carlton. And we talk a little bit about the work that he's done at Ritz-Carlton and Mercedes-Benz and Starbucks. Fantastic books, all of them. He's got two books due out later this year, so we'll have, we'll have him back to talk about those. So great conversation about some of the elements that are key. If you want customer service to be at the heart of your strategy, what do you need to do? Where do you start? You know, mapping out the customer journey, finding those high value touch points. And he tells some great stories about great service that he has seen. Fantastic conversation with Joseph. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Well, I'm Joseph Michelli. I am a customer experience consultant, and I am from the Tampa, Florida area. And how come you're a customer experience consultant? In reality, I think it was because of my mom and dad, but isn't that the, their excuse for everything in our lives? My mom and dad really taught me early on that we're not on this planet to be served. We are on this planet to serve others, and it is through serving others that we are served. It's kind of this wonderful service serves us mindset. And uh, I don't really think I knew anything about customer experience per se, but I was working in healthcare and attempting to try to elevate the service quality in healthcare. 
And boy, were we naive. We had scripts and we had templates of what you were supposed to say when. But over time, I've really grown into this concept of what it means to envelop someone in an entire experience where they feel cared for and cared about. Okay. When you say that, that to me, the word that springs to mind is hospitality. Is that, you know, or... I love that word. And I use it in a lot of settings that people think of hospitality, very limited window, you know, it's hotels, it's food and beverage, but really hospitality is a concept that should be infused in everything. For example, in writing a book about healthcare, I said that they really have to have the hospitality of a Ritz-Carlton in healthcare today. They have to have the safety considerations of NASA. They have to have the innovation of Apple, right? I mean, hospitality is that dimension that warms up and humanizes a lot of our technology technologies. When you were talking about your, you know, learning from your mom and dad, it captures there's a, in hospitality, there's a warmth, a real warmth. And the people who are in it are in it because they genuinely want to be there. You know, whereas if I think about, there are times I meet waiters or bar staff or other service people. And I think to myself, man, why are they doing this? Because they're crap at it. Because they hate it. They really don't like humanity. And it certainly, I, I, I know it's different in the US. We, we've lived in the US for a bit in the past. But in the UK, I think there is one job which has been completely left behind by the customer experience revolution. And that is the general practitioner, the GP's receptionist. And her job is, I think, just to be mean to people. Now, I don't know whether they get picked for that job because they're mean or whether being doing that job makes them mean, but Man, it's not a customer service. It's a customer service facing role, it's, but most of those people. Well, let's talk about getting mean from being in the throes of customer service. I mean, right now there's there's the American Rage survey that came out showing that increasingly, at least on our part of the on our side of the pond, people are overtly angry and nasty to service professionals today, and increased likelihood there's going to be violence perpetrated against them. So, I think there is there's danger in the trenches, right? And I think we need to be honest about that in the service of humans. Now, it's not all pretty and puppy dogs and roses, but the key is that if we can figure out how to manage people who are having terrible days and terrible lives and still be able to provide them something of value, our businesses are gonna be sustainable. If we can take normal people who aren't enraged and we can uplift their mood, we're gonna even, we're gonna be craveable. And so I, I, you know, I'm, I really am a fundamental believer, irrespective of how, you know, people are, we as service providers should be elevating the human condition. And I'm sorry for your receptionist. I do think that interestingly, like l black cab drivers in London are similar. You know, there's just that sort of grumpy old men. You know, does it make them grumpy or is it just a great job if you're a grumpy old man? I don't know. Yeah, I think that that was the cab driver we experienced a lot. I think it's the birth of Uber. And, you know, not everybody in Uber gets it either, right? I mean, a lot of those people are very transactional. You know, I wrote a book about Airbnb. There are plenty of Airbnb hosts are just really transactional. But the goal is to say, you have an opportunity. You have a product. It's your car. It's your cab. It's your place, your flat. But why not? provide that to somebody with a little bit of sizzle, with a little bit of that warmth that you described earlier. And, and won't that make someone want to connect with you again? I'm going back to an Airbnb for the fifth time because of the host. I mean, it's, it's a wonderfully novel, quirky place, but the host is amazing and he gets it that I could choose a lot of other better places.
One of the things that I find interesting is you're in a restaurant and, you know, you reflect back on, God, you come out of a restaurant, you think, you know, in the car home and, you know, you're saying to your wife, that was amazing. Let's go back. Let's, let's go back again there next week. And you think, like, was it the, was it the decor? You know, was it the quality of the food? Often all of those things are the same as they were somewhere else. It was the people. And it's that, it's the human interaction that is the difference from it being good enough to going again. Yeah, once in a great while, I'll have such an incredible meal that, you know, the staff could have probably slapped me upside the head and I want to come back, right? But that's pretty rare. I mean, I think that there, it's, for me, there is product quality. You can never compromise the product quality. It's got to be there. That's table stakes, though. And then the question is, how do you differentiate yours from the next? And I think it is, as you put it so well, it's the people who make it memorable. It's the, it, all business is personal. Let's get to that, right? And so if you can make whatever your business as warm and personal as possible, you're going to win against those who just deliver a comparable product. Yeah. Although there are times when, you know, they cock it up in a restaurant and a great, you know, a great waiter or, you know, somebody genuinely is, seems to be disappointed and cares can, can turn it around so that you don't hold it against them. Well, service recovery is huge, you know, and my book about the Ritz-Carlton, and I know we share a lot of connections around that, but you know, my book about the Reds Carlton, one of the things they do well is, is they fix their problems efficiently, both at the customer level, the presenting customer, but also at the root cause level. And that's what drives this brand forward. It's not like they're perfect at the Ritz Carlton. They just make their imperfections palatable. Uh, when I was talking to Horst Schultz, you know, he's saying, well, one of the things that we had was, you know, take, don't, don't point. And you put that alongside the $2,000 they can spend to fix a problem. And he's like, well, you know, I'm taking you to the gym, but whilst I'm taking you to the gym, I'm saying, so Joseph, tell me how your stay is going. Is everything okay? Is there anything that where the hotel is, you know, not meeting your expectations? And if I didn't do that, if I just point, I don't have the opportunity to, to put the $2,000 to work. And so, so the whole thing, all of these things sort of interconnect and you see other organizations on the outside looking at what some organizations do and they copy, they copy a bit of it, but they don't sort of copy the intent or the joined up nature of it all. And so that it just ends up costing them money as opposed to having an impact. So I have a few quick little stories about take. First off, there's empirical research that shows that service has to be made tangible. If I say go over there, you know, it's over there. There's no sense that I've served you in any way. If I physically walk with you, it makes it more tangible. If I write, draw you a map as opposed to pointing, it makes it more tangible. I received something that we can call service. So there's a whole empirical science on that. But, but what I love about the Ritz Carlson, in the early days, they used to have a service standard that says you will walk the person to their destination. And everyone was expected behaviorally to do that. Well, the problem is they started getting complaints about people walking them into a bathroom, right? Like this can go way too far. And the whole emphasis was, you know, we are guides, like we are guides. And if you're truly a guide, you're going to guide someone physically to where they need to be. You're not going to point. And so in the guiding, we also said this is an incredible opportunity to give one-on-one -on -one focused attention that allows you to listen with your eyes and ears, antenna up, radar on, collect information that we can then leverage for the use of the $2,000 empowerment per day, per guest to enhance their experience, reduce service recovery. So without a doubt, the proposition isn't the moving of your feet. 
It is the connecting with a person as a guide to the now experience, but as a guide to an enriched experience from the information you collect. And there's value created both ways. There's value to the employee and there's value to the guest. As you said earlier, like if you're in the business of serving, you want the opportunity to serve because, you know, you could get paid to do someone else. Yeah. And and people, and, and Ritz-Carlton is in a big tip environment. That's not how they oper- actually operate. There's a lot of prestige in being a lady or gentleman of the Ritz-Carlton. It is a kind of a celebrated, elevated service professional. And I think we get service servitude and service professionalism confused. I mean, people who provide me service are not servants. They can become service professionals if they elevate their understanding of how to create great experiences for me and add value. Otherwise, they're transactional objects in a in a universe where they're becoming less important. Yeah. I, I as you were describing the walking to the bathroom though, what is burnt on my memory, you know, bad, bad experiences and good experiences get burnt on your memory. I, you know, you go into a hotel room and somebody says, can I show you how the lights work? You know, and it's like, no, for God's sake, don't be showing me how the lights work. I'm not a complete moron. I can flick a switch. <laughs> right. And you just go, Ah, oh, you know, if it was complicated, then maybe that would be useful, but it's actually just a light switch. And I've got that. Thank you. Amen. And the same is true when I'm being instructed on how to put my seatbelt on in an airplane. Oh yeah. In case you hadn't flown before. At this point in my life, <laughs> I've survived it somehow. Yeah. I have no cars, no car. No, I've had no experiences for, I've no reference point. <laughs> Thank you for that. And even if you'd never done it, not that complicated, is it? Yeah, no, I think I got it. Yeah. So you could be a customer experience consultant and never have written a book about any of these things. So what drives you to catalog the the greatness of some of these people? Actually, I fear the other side, which is that I could have written a bunch of books and never had any real experiences. That's the thing that that would scare me a lot. So my blessing is that I have, it started with a little fish market in Seattle. I think it's that book right about there. And I was, I was fortunate enough to work with the owner who was really, he was near bankruptcy. He, all the other fish markets in the area had just outperformed him. He had a terrible human experience. They were going, he was circling the drain. You can almost hear the toilet flush on his business. And so they reached out to me. I was in graduate school and I came up and we kind of tried to figure this thing out. It became really clear that they had a horrid way of treating people. <laughs> Great fish though. They had really, really good fish on the stand, but there was it was overshadowed by how bad they they treated people. So we really focused on it transformed it. That little fish market throws fish. It's exciting. It's dynamic. We added life to a really a fish morgue. That's their product, like a dead, cold, lifeless, slimy project. There's not much more disgusting thing you could sell in terms of no no sexiness to it. So we really created a fun environment. And if you watch videos of the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, they're throwing fish, they're chanting. It's it's just very energized. And so from that experience as a consultant on to consulting just oh, 200 yards away from that original fish market, I worked for the first Starbucks store and worked for Howard Schultz. And and so I wrote a book about that fish market, which then caused me to get the attention of Starbucks, which had been modeling some of its experiences off that little fish market, and then started working there and wrote a book about Starbucks. They were kind enough to let me use their logo on the cover of the book as part of our journey of their their experience. And then it just went from there. Ritz-Carlton was next, and 
Mercedes and Zappos, uh, a company owned by Amazon here in the States, another Starbucks book, yeah, Airbnb, you name it. It's just been an incredible journey of consulting. And then some of the companies I consult about being willing to let me to write about our journey to, and, and it's a journey. I mean, these brands are not perfect, but it's our journey to try to improve the way customers are cared for and cared about. So when you say, I was at grad school and they reached out to me, is that because they had so little money, they wanted somebody who was affordable and you were the cheapest person they could find who looked like they knew what they were doing? This story is even better. It's even better than that. As good as that analysis was at speculation. So I got a call from my professor and said, Joseph, they want you in Seattle. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, they want you to come up and work for them. And I thought, this is not true. I mean, no one knows me. So how could they want me? No one wants me. And then I thought, you know what this means? This means they have no money. Because if they wanted somebody and they had some money, my professor would have taken the consulting gig, right? They would have never rolled downhill to this lowly graduate student. And so the fact that I got it meant I worked for Fish. But it was such, he was, an in, he was interned in a Japanese-American internment camp in World War II. His family had owned a produce stand that had been taken away during the internment. He came back, he was working in this little fish market and ended up buying it out just because the owner of the market hated it so much that Johnny, and then because of all that lack of control early in his life, you know, being interned, Johnny was a terrible leader for years and just sucked the energy out of the company. And then later did a lot of personal work, really worked on his leadership skills. And he was the most wonderful human being I could ever work with. And thank God for him and my, it really fostered my career. So yes. Fantastic. They want, they, they didn't want me and I'm so glad they did. Fabulous. And compare and contrast these businesses that you've worked with. Do they have some things in common? Do they have, are there some unique things that each of them have? That might be interesting. Yeah, I think they all have one thing in common. And unfortunately, if you don't have this, it's hard to really make it happen. They all had a senior leader who prioritized customer experience as part of the strategy, right? So if you work for a company that really doesn't care about people, it's pretty dang hard to do what these brands have done. I was with a firm a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about their strategy and they said, customer experience is going to be the keystone of our strategy. I said, it's really fucking hard. (laughs) pick another strategy (laughs) i said and to be honest i'm not convinced having spent two days with you that you care enough to do the hard yards and they went yeah you're probably right let's pick another strategy (laughs) it's just like oh no so let me this tells my journey like early in my career when i was hungry People would say, hey, it's going to be the year of the customer. Would you like to work for us? I'm going, year of the customer? Sure, I'll work for you. Now, if somebody says something like that, I say, well, like, what was last year? Like the year of the pizza? The year of the pony? I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. If not every day is the day of the customer, we are not in business here. I'm not going to work for you. You're not. This isn't something you put on you know, like a costume, you know, you got to believe and live it. And you're right. It's so hard. And, and, you know, so you take like Mercedes Benz, which is a brand I worked with here in the U S and consulted for, and this leader was all in, I mean, we were, he slept, drank and believed it. He said that, you know, he doesn't make the cars, 
they they do in Vance, Alabama, but not in you know the the division that really supports the dealer body, Mercedes Benz USA. So we don't make the cars. What we do is facilitate the dealerships to create an experience for customers. We support them in that journey, and I'm going to be all in on it. That will be what I'm known for. I will be driven to delight our customers, and that became the title of the book. And we, I mean, it was an incredible lift for multiple years with multiple consultants. I was not their only consultant, and we move the needle on their customer-facing metric, the J.D. Power Customer Satisfaction Index, from 33rd in the auto industry to first. Now, imagine we were going into Daimler saying, woohoo, we just beat Mazda this day on the J.D. Power. Yeah! I mean, it was embarrassing what was going on. A brand that says we are best or nothing, and who are, you know, we're like 33rd. That's nothing, folks, right? And so incredible amount of commitment at the top of that organization, incredible lift. We said it was going to take four years. It took two and a half because they they looked at every touch point. They trained every individual. We created immersive experience training. It was a big lift. And you have to have a lot of will to make that happen. So to, blessings to you, Dominic, to advise your clients accordingly. And is that before Mercedes? Because certainly in the UK or maybe the, all of Europe, they've decided to own their own dealerships. Have they done the same in the US? Or no? At the time, at the time we did it first, there was only one owned and operated Mercedes dealership, and that was in New York City. It was Manhattan proper. And at that time, also Mercedes was based in New Jersey, and now they're based in Atlanta. But there hasn't been a, a move yet to kind of take over the dealerships in the United States. Well, I mean, if they if they can get the number one in the Jetty Power. Than- yeah, it was incredible. I mean, they had, but you know, to do that, we had to change the incentives. So, so to give you a classic example, Mercedes has a fixed margin and a variable margin. And so the dealers are going to get that fixed margin every time they sell a car, service the car on plan. But the variable margin is going to be based on any, you know, all kinds of things. And, and so we had to negotiate with Daimler. We had to negotiate with the dealer body. And essentially we said, we're going to increase the variable margin, take away some of your fixed margin. But we're going to give every single dime we take away back into the system, and we're going to give it to those who really knock it out of the park on customer experience. In the old days, Daimler would do this. They would say, if you didn't earn out the margin, we keep it, right? Like So any variable margin that wasn't earned out was absorbed back by the, by the company. Now we said, no, we're giving every piece of the variable margin back into the system. We're just going to make it a meritocracy. We're not going to make, you know, we're going to make sure that some people may not get any of that variable margin and others are going to get a lion's share of it because they really kick rear on customer experience. And so there was a lot of work that had to be done to get to that point. JD Power, I've got some amazing data looking at repeat purchase if the dealer experience is great. You know, bad cars and good dealers outsell great cars and poor dealers in terms of repeat purchases. So bottom line on this whole thing is to get into the service bay. I mean, to, to you know, that's where the money is made in this industry. Those margins are fairly thin on the sale of the car. So you want to keep the life cycle in your dealership translating into service and then into the next purchase. And two and a half years, what it cost them and what was it worth? I'm not, I have no idea. I know what it cost them for me and it was a heavy lift. They also, and I I was relatively small, I think, compared to some of the others they had in it. Any sense of what it was worth to them to go from 33rd to first? Yeah, it was, I I mean, no uh, market share increase, repeat business increase. There was, they had all their KPIs that they were tracking alongside of their performance on JD Power and, and all those KPIs moved in the right direction. And I'm clear to me that 
Had they had this not been fiscally prudent, they wouldn't have done it. I mean, there were things like, I mean, here's a simple example. Using technology at the point of sale resulted in an increase of that purchase price by $750. Now, trying to figure this out doesn't make any logical sense on one hand, but you're selling a car that is a supercomputer, right? And you have no technology present in the context of your sales, you know, your sales pitch. It, it was a disconnect between, are you really technologically advanced or not? And through whatever coincidence of the universe, when you showed that technology, you could show features of the car that were buried inside of this thing that you could not experience, you know, just driving it. You were showing value that was otherwise hidden, which allowed you to negotiate to that value point at a $750 premium. Fab. Which one of you enjoyed working with the most? Oh, give me a break. You've written two books. Which of your books do you like better? <laughs> the second one. The last one. <laughs> well, good. Anybody who bought the first one really got it ripped off compared to the second one, apparently. The other one's dead to me now. Yeah. <laughs> I know that one. Uh, you know, it's like choosing your children. It's hard to answer that question. I didn't mean which of the books do you like the best. I meant thinking about... Well, you, which of the companies did you like the best? Where, where would you like to work again and where would you not like to work again? No, I, you know, the politically correct answer is I love them all equally. But the truth is, no, no, there's a truth. I'll answer. I'll answer. I, I'm just teasing you. You know, look, it, there are very different kinds of things that I like about these brands. The formality of Ritz-Carlton is a little off-putting for somebody like me because I'm very casual and relaxed. So it took a long time to kind of get to that gravitas of the Ritz-Carlton. Zappos was incredibly fun to work with. But, you know, Tony Shea, who was the CEO of Zappos, perished in his own, kind of hoist himself on his own petard, literally. So, uh, you know, I love the wild, wacky, zany component of that brand. Uh, I think if I had to balance it out, I've always been a fan of Starbucks. I, I was a fan of Howard Schultz personally because of just what an incredible man he was to work with. And I loved working with Mercedes as well. They just had that right balance of of seriousness, but they also had a little bit of a playful side that I enjoyed. And what was the most fun change up or switch you got somebody to do or they did? Well, none of these brands, but I worked with um, International Dairy Queen and John Gaynor, uh, the CEO there. And so the most, my most fame thing was just working with a group of people who looked for a signature moment in the customer journey, a moment that would be memorable for people. And so the moment was to flip the blizzard. Now I'm, you know, the blizzard is there. Their blizzard is a frozen, highly concentrated, you know, ice cream-ish thing that when you flip it, it doesn't, you know, it's so emulsified and frozen and solid. And so we would flip it as we, you know, at the drive-through before we hand it over. So the handoff was you give us the money, we give you the blizzard, we flip it over, show you how it works. So that was fun because it really was a signification of the quality of the product. I mean, this is a, you know, rich product and, and it was a signature moment. It was playful. What are, in your sort of, consulting playbook what are some of the things that still people even though you've written about this a million times and if people cared they'd have read your books and they'd have already fixed it but what are the things that it's depressing that people still get wrong yeah i'm i'm never depressed because the, the fact that they don't know it keeps me in business right so i'm smiling all the way 
you know, reality is I just don't understand why people fight the power of emotion so much. You know, we act like business is just this very logical, linear, cognitive thing. And I'm interacting with you and I'm creating, you know, practical and, you know, instrumental value for you. And thus we, you know, we continue to purchase. Yes. I mean, we justify everything with that kind of tone and that intellectualness, but we're making choices right from our gut and our heart all the time. And brands that don't understand how to go to be top of heart instead of just top of mind, it's just, it's kind of silly. So I spent a lot of time with brands I work with trying to get people to say, what do you want people to feel when they interact with you? Not what do you want them to think? Now, what do you want them to say in a kind of a polite, chit-chatty way? But what do you want them to flip and feel? And if you don't get that figured out and you don't claim that space and you teach everybody that's our job to leave them walking out with that feeling, you are, you're going to lose in the marketplace. And once you do define it, then you got to teach your people to improvise to make it happen. Look at that Ritz-Carlton. You should feel nurtured. You know, the ultimate feeling state is that you have entered the home of a loving parent. You have been loved on by a loving mama or a loving dad. And that's the job. And every single lady or gentleman of the Ritz-Carlton should love on you so that you walk out, you go, mama fixed me a drink. You know, you felt so, and if you don't get that, then you can't train your staff. And the reality is unlike manufacturing, here's the manufacturing approach. We get consistent raw material, we impose a process, and then we look for 0.0001 defects, right? Like that's the way it works. In the human service side, the raw product is flipping crazy. It is wide ranging, all kinds of variations. We do impose processes and you need to impose processes in your service world. But even in those cases, you have to nuance your process in line with whatever the raw material is with a goal to some kind of an outcome. And that outcome should be what you want people to feel. Yeah, I just, and as you talk, in my mind, I've got United Airlines dragging that poor guy off the flight. Bloodied. Yeah. What did we want him to feel? We wanted to feel pain. We wanted everybody else to be embarrassed and we wanted everybody to hate us. Oh, yeah. And so obviously, had you known what you wanted him to feel, you would have done everything possible to still achieve that and get that plane going wherever it needed to go. Come on, you must have some amazing stories about stuff like that that you've seen. Not that you can name the people, but... You know, no, no, no. I, I strive to erase my mind of those stories. What I really aspire to do is use positive examples to inspire us all. You know, I, I love, this has nothing to do with this. I don't know why I'm going here. And it's clearly not going to be positive when I start. But a man's search for meaning, right, about the concentration camps. There is a line, and I read it all the time, right? I read it every few years. And there's a line that I read this last time through. And it basically said that in the end of life, when people were starving, some people gave food to people who were worse off than them. What Viktor Frankl says is that not many people did. Like not many humans literally took the food out of their mouth and gave it to people who were nearer to death than themselves. But what he says is the fact that people can is what should inspire us all to what humanity is possible, right? So for me, I spend my life trying to look at the, the people who are trying to give that extra effort on behalf of service. So the rest of us can stop giving excuses as to why we didn't put a little bit more effort into it. Right? Like we can make up all kinds of reasons why we can't serve others well, or we can just dig down in another gear 
and be those people that inspire the rest of us. So, so I don't have a lot of stories of service failures. I do have lots of stories, of massively wonderful service. Go on, give us a couple of those then. You know, I, in the Ritz Carlton book, which you read, one of the f- stories I tell is about Natalie. And Natalie was a young girl dying of cancer. And the Ritz Carlton, instead of, you know, ignoring her in their community, they literally created a prom for her. And they brought all of these different skill sets that they have in throwing these wonderful events and created the most memorable night of her life. She died shortly thereafter. The family was forever touched by this moment, right? So were the staff. How would you like to work for a company that really reaches out and loves on people in ways that create these memories in the worst of times? Because you are so skilled at creating those kind of environments. I have so many Ritz-Carlton stories. I have so many Starbucks stories. I have them all, but they're always people who just said, you know, I have a book coming out. We'll talk about it some other time called Customer Magic. And the word magic is to challenge the seemingly impossible. I have people who constantly challenge the seemingly impossible and deliver remarkable human experiences one to the next. And both the customer benefits, but so does the provider. As a CEO leader in a business, it's it's creating the environment where people are, you know, when I was at Pier 1, we would we had an e-commerce business that was losing £100,000 a day. N- not our fault. Some other problem in their, in their code. But three of the team decided to sleep in the office. They slept in the office for 72 hours, right? And they were working, they were working four hours on, four hours off and spotting, you know, allowing one to go to sleep while the other two were working. And the CEO of that business rang me up and he said, your people care more about my business than we do. And it's just, it gives everybody a lift, you know, those guys are heroes, but the rest of the organization is proud to be on the same team and customers are delighted. And it's just a great place. You know, I, it's people looking for unexploded ordinance so that they get an opportunity to throw themselves on it. Is It's that, that you know, because it's in some people, it's just in them and you just have to hire them and give them the opportunity to express it. Well, let's give you a little credit as much as I hate to do that, Dominic. I mean, you know, you used a phrase called creating the environment. And clearly you identified that these are people of your team. And I think that what you see is that leaders who do create the environment. I, I like to say, how do you create a mouse? Because we can all create m- mice. We just put a lot of bread stuffing around and we make sure there's plenty of food product. And you know, before you know it, mice will appear. We create environments. And the environments we create either encourage people to be of service or encourage people to cover their own rears when it comes to blame and fault and responsibility, only do what they're told. You know, We tell stories about great customer experience, we tell stories about this team. We say, this is the kind of team that we celebrate and we believe in that makes this company great. They care so much about one another, about the customer, about our longevity to serve other customers. These are the people we should celebrate in this organization. And, And before you know it, the whole organization starts to say, that's how things get done here, which is what I think culture is. And then before you know it, that's how things get done there. And more and more people sign up. You may, I mean, you mentioned Mercedes-Benz and the incentives, but it's that social currency. Who, you know, when, pe- when you say thank you to somebody publicly, who are you thanking and what are you thanking them for? And being deliberate about that, I think. Yeah, when you're specific and you're immediate in your thanking uh, and you're holding it, connecting it to the values of your organization. I think those are the things that make a difference. Yeah, Where's the best place to start? So if if you're listening to this and you're thinking, 
okay, we're quite good, but if we want to be obsessive and we want to be great, is one of your books the best place to start? Oh, I think there are so many books. My books are among them, you know, the, the, the catalog now. You know, I started reading The Experience Economy when it first came out by Gilmore and Pine. They are the first to articulate that, look, we've gone through many economic shifts and we are now in a time when service is just not enough. You have to envelop that service in an experience. You need to stage the entire experience. You need to think about your workplace as a theater where you're creating emotion, you're, you're creating environment, you know, lighting and every touch point needs to be considered. So I think it's a great way to get your head around it. If you're going to pick up one of my books, you know, I do think that there's a lot in either the Ritz-Carlton book or the Mercedes book to get you going. And then obviously, once you've read one, you've got to read them all. That's kind of like a potato chip. You cannot just read just one. And great book about early days of Amazon, the best service is no service. And of course, what they were doing is they were saying, yes, let's get remediation. Yes, let's do the right thing. But let's get obsessive about making sure nobody ever needs to ring us at all. It's sort of the antithesis of service, but it's got them a net promoter score in the in the 80s. And what do you think of that? Is that not what we've been talking about? Is that different to service? No, no. I think the world is shifting, right? So service is not just human service. It's technology-aided service too. And quite frankly, technology-aided service is probably more important than human service most of the time because most of us would rather engage technology that works to efficiently resolve an issue than have to engage a person and wait for that. I say that most of us, that's because we've been conditioned to do that. There was a time when we'd much prefer to have a person at all times. I remember the first time I saw a kiosk at a hotel and I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to go there to get my key. I mean, like that would, there's no way that's going to work. Uh, I'll stand in this long line behind 70 other people to talk to a person who gave me a key that didn't work. So my point here is I think that we have really need technology to do the very things that Amazon was talking about early on. And that is it's got to help anticipate needs so that we don't actually have to reach out to a human to have them taken care of retroactively. Like they should be proactive in, in the response. So I'm a big fan of using technology in the human experience journey. We look, whenever I do journey mapping, which I do all the time, so it's a matter of who are your core customer segments, let's create their journeys, and then let's look at all the high value touch points. There's a million touch points, but there's only so many of them that you can manage. The high value touch points, the ones that are gonna cause customers to churn or make your brand memorable or really cause them to immediately tweet something terrible about you, to immediately say something, and where are those moments? And then, how do we make sure that we can remove as many of those pain points with technology as possible? And if people do want to opt human, how do we have the right amount of humans available? And how do we have them well-trained, maybe even using AI to help them inform their response? So, I mean, truly, the journey now is a combination of both technology, people, and process. And it's knowing when and how to use each of them based on your resources. As, as you were talking, I was thinking, that I talked a while ago to the guy who did some work helping Burberry look at their store experience in in their store in Bond Street, you know, and they had, you know, the doors were closed. They had two big fellas outside. It looked uninspiring. So they're like, okay, well, we'll get rid of the security guards on the outside. We'll put them on the inside. We'll open the doors. And what do people hate the most? The checkout. So we will get rid of the checkout. And we'll, it, when you try something on in the changing room, the person who's helping you try stuff on in the changing room can just go, and would you like me to put this in a bag for you? and sell it to you that it's like just 
easy, but it's not, you know, once you, so you just look at that, what are all those touch points? Well, in working with Starbucks and not the first book, but the second book, Leading the Starbucks Way, it's kind of up on the corner there. Leading the Starbucks Way, we that's kind of when Starbucks was using mobile pay for the first time at scale, really lame technology, Dominic. We had 2D scanners, right, at the point of sale, mainly because we were waiting for somebody to set the standard on what mobile technology is going to be. It's going to be near a field. What was it going to be? But 2D scanners until some convention was created. And lo and behold, it was kind of the fastest, you know, in the United States deployment of at retail, point of sale, mobile, scannable technology. And, and it all came down to that was just such a pain point. Why did I have to wait for somebody to make change when I could just use my phone uh, to access it? And then you just build on that platform, right? Then we're going to do mobile ordering. You know, you look at Amazon and the Amazon Go stores, you know, where it's all AI and beacons and, and you don't even have anything other than carry your phone in and out. You don't even have to present it. It just, you know, it's got you covered and there is no cashier. So uh, we're moving there. I mean, it's all going to depend on how much people tolerate. You know, are you going to have complete humanless transactions? Maybe. But yeah, I think the way that you're describing the changes there are certainly in keeping with what we're seeing in most most sectors. What is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, I wish I'd known you earlier, Dominic. This is kind of late in the game for us to get to know each other. Beyond that obvious answer, I, I think I, I wish I would have known that I didn't need to know everything. I mean, I think early as a consultant, I felt like I had to have an answer for everything. And now I have to have a question for everything. I have to have a smart question. And the more smart questions I ask, the better I am. The more I think I have to have a smart answer, the more I repeat the same things and don't grow. So question more, speak less enjoy the ride. Don't take yourself too seriously. Fab. And you've already said, look, the, the new gold standard and driven to delight your books about Ritz Carlton and Mercedes Benz are two good places to jump in with you. What other books do you recommend? And they might be not about customer experience. You might have just been reading something amazing that was about something completely different. But what have you got that could inspire people? You know, I love all of Brene Brown's work. So anything like, you know, Dare to Lead to me is always helpful because I think a lot of times what happens is that we just don't speak the truth. We don't understand that, that you know, being clear is kind. And so we often zigzag around and we put a lot of armor on and we don't rumble, you know, with courage. So I, I do love her work in general. But, you know, I, I read a lot of stuff outside of the business world because I think history teaches us so much about business. And so the more I read about history, the more I understand what has happened before and that we stand on the shoulders of giants to make the decisions we make today and, and not everything. And it's not always about us and we have to be grateful for all that came before. So you got a favorite history book then? I read Will and Ariel Durant's, you know, The History of Civilization, which is like a 12, you know, compendium book of all history. And I read it every 10 years or so because it takes me about that long to get through all of them. <laughs> oh, I'm back here again. And I think, I mean, the, ben the Brené Brown stuff, when you there, you know, talking about uh, having difficult conversations, it's tangential, but linked to great service, I think. There's, cause that's that, you know, when you talked about ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, that's being on the front foot. It's not being a servant, it's being of service. And, and if you want to be of service to people, there are sometimes some truths to be spoken. Now that's flipping brilliant that observation. I think bottom line is great people in service are compassionate and assertive, right? Like 
great healthcare providers aren't telling you what, oh, yes, please have another, you know, have another painkiller. You know, that isn't good service. It's saying to you, here, I am, you know, I really want to connect with what is the pain and the impact of that pain on you and try to understand what you need and how I can help you. But I need to set a limit. And the limit is this. And once people have that, then you are serving them constructively. So the answer isn't always yes, even though that's what the Ritz-Carlton will tell you. The answer is sometimes no. The way you say no is very much Ritz-Carlton, which is to say, here's what I can do, as opposed to here's what I can't. So I think there's an art to saying no, um, but you still need to be assertive. To constantly roll over makes you a doormat. It makes you a servant. It does not make you a service professional. I We used to have two lists. We had the top 10 list of clients that the employees hated to work with the most. And we had the top 10 least profitable clients that we worked with month over month. And those two lists were very, very similar. And, you know, we'd fire a client and the team would do a happy dance because they just got a job upgrade because, you know, or I remember having to ring some CEOs and say, you can't talk to my team anymore because I'm just going to not let you shout at them. Ring me if you want to shout at somebody, but don't ring the team. That's what ladies or gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen means. If you were to behave, Dominic, to a lady or gentleman at the Ritz-Carlton in an unkindly manner, I would come to you as the general manager and I would say, Dominic, can you comport your behavior to that of a gentleman? Because if you cannot, you are not going to interact with our gentleman who attempted to serve you. And you would say, screw you, pal. And I would say, okay, here, please, I'd like to invite you to the Four Seasons Hotel. I will pay for your night stay there, but you will not treat our lady or gentleman like that. Yeah. It's, I think that's often that respect of the employees. It's a big thing. It means a lot to the team. Yeah, because that lady or gentleman is going to go treat the next person with the same kind of respect. If you disrespected that lady or gentleman, it's pretty hard to convince them that they should elevate the way they care about others when they've been so undercare. You told me it wasn't about the money. It was about the service. And now, obviously, it's all about the money. Amen. Hallelujah. We'll let them do anything to you if we can get the money. No wonder people feel like they're servants. Yeah. Joseph, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's my delight, Dominic. Thanks for uh, taking the time. I'd love to get you on. You've got some new books coming out in the future. So once they're out, we'll get you back on. That'd be brilliant. That'd be lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.